Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Victor Manin, and I have the honor today of welcoming Professor Nina Gelbert to talk about her latest book published by the Yale University Press, Minerva's French Sisters, Women of Science in Enlightenment France. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for being here. You're a professor of history and professor of women's studies at Occidental College in Los Angeles. You teach early modern uh, European history, French Enlightenment, women's history, as well as the history of science and medicine. Uh, among your many publications, we can highlight uh, some of your books, uh, The King's Midwife, A History and Mystery of Madame du Coudray, published in 1998, as well as Feminine and Opposition Journalism in Old Regime French, published in 1987. But we're here to discuss your latest book, uh, Minerva's French Sister. And uh, before we start delving into the book, I just would like uh, to give you some time to share with us your intellectual trajectory toward uh, and in the field of women's history, and especially women's history of, of uh, science. Uh, how did you become interested in this topic? And uh, what kind of challenges did you encounter along the way? Okay, well, thanks so much for having me and for taking an interest in my latest book. Uh, I have been interested in history since I was a kid, pretty much, and um, and I went to a special high school for for music, actually. I was going to be a cellist, and then I decided, no, there were too many other things going on that were exciting, and I uh, majored in biochemistry with a double major in history also, so I was always kind of straddling these two fields, and so... um, the French Enlightenment was a period that was always of tremendous interest to me. I, I admired so much these ideals of progress and toleration and rationality. And, and of all the periods that I studied, my parents took me all around Europe and we traveled very widely when I was a kid. But it was the 18th century in France that somehow seemed to me the most compelling um, period because it was it was literally the threshold of, of modernity in so many ways. So, uh, of course, I was interested in the science of that period. Uh, and I, I, I became interested also, obviously, in the French Revolution. And I was very bothered by this uh, liberté, égalité, fraternité. I wondered about the fraternité part. Where were the girls? Where were the women? They were there. They had done a lot for the revolution, but somehow... They weren't being featured in any kind of central way. And then I took that desire to find the women of the period back into the Enlightenment itself. So my my first book was on female journalists. Then I wrote a biography of of a sort of celebrity midwife who was a celebrity, and yet nobody had written about her, um, commissioned by the king to travel throughout France and basically teach the art of midwifery and she was given the job by Louis the Fifteenth to basically arrest infant mortality, nothing less. So she was pretty fascinating. And um, then I turned to the women uh, who were trying to pursue science, which was, of course, not a thing that women did. And uh, so I guess I guess one could say, in answer to your question, that my interest in history, my interest in science, my interest in women, and my interest in this particular period um, have kind of converged. Uh, for this for this particular book, fantastic! I, this sounds like a very interesting trajectory, and I think uh, it 
it says this this very deep, deeply rooted interest that you have about the period and and the question of fraternité. Uh, I think really says a lot, uh, explains a lot about um, some of the very personal tone that you're using in this book, uh, Minerva's French Sisters. We can feel uh, the reader uh, can feel uh, that it's a very personal topic. And I will say that I thought it was such a rich and fascinating book, which in a way almost read as a series of five novellas, uh, to me at least, retracing the personal and, and scientific trajectories of six women who lived in the 18th century, uh, in 18th century France. Uh, and, and since I, I, th- I feel like since that one of the main goals of your book is to restore their legacy, uh, we should at least... Uh, uh, Call them by their name uh, for at least for to, to start this conversation. There is first of all the mathematician Elisabeth Ferrand, uh, the astronomer Nicole Rennes Le uh, the botanists uh, Jeanne Barret and Madeleine Françoise Basport, uh, the anatomist uh, Marie Marguerite Biron, and, uh, and the chemist uh, Marie Geneviève Charlotte Thiroux d'Arconville. Uh, so, quite a fascinating cast. Uh, we could see that you also chose them so that they represent at least a different field in the natural sciences, in philosophy. So it's quite interesting to see how diverse um, their um, scientific enterprise and contribution were. Uh, So could you explain how you came to assemble such an incredible cast spanning across so many different disciplines and what made sense to you in presenting these uh, six scientists together? Okay, Um, that is a a wonderful question. And one of the reasons this book took me forever uh, was because I ended up being able to find more about each of these women than I had hoped or expected to find. So whereas my previous book had been on this midwife, Madame du Coudray, who, as I say, was commissioned by the king and therefore had an official mission and therefore in the 30-some-odd archives throughout the departments of France where I did my work, I could find a paper trail of her because she was on a, a mission um, that that was documented by the king's men in all of these various provinces, the, the délégué, the subdélégué. You know, the, I could find, I could put together her story with very rich archival sources. Uh, here I was dealing with people who were relatively mute. And so... Uh, why those six, I, I did come across, and I say this in my introduction, I believe, that I came across glimpses of quite a few other women who were doing things in science in this period, but they were merely glimpses. These were were people about whom I just wasn't able to find out enough to flesh out their stories. Uh, too much evidence had been lost to time. These six women, as I worked, uh, became pretty full-bodied to me. Uh, There was a lot I could find about them and a lot I could say about them. I didn't think any one of them would, that that I would have a rich enough documentation for any one of them to become a full book, as was the case with my midwife. So I got early on the idea of putting together a sort of constellation of these different women in different fields, also very different social Um, situations. I mean, Jeanne Barret was a domestic. She was a servant. Uh, Thiroux d'Arconville was a grande dame. She was an aristocrat. 
extremely wealthy. Her um, home in France, of course, she had her tail, she had her estates in various other places as well. But her home in France is what is today uh, the Musée de la Chasse in the in the Marais. I mean, this is a, a mansion. Okay, that was her home where she's doing <laughs> experiments on putrefying flesh, but we'll get to her. Um, anyway, so so just every single one of them was extraordinarily fascinating. And as I worked, uh, I went with the ones about whom I could say the most. Um, and so in a sense, um, it, 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 it's, a little, it's a little random sounding, but not really, because these were the ones that I could really zero in on about whom contemporaries said a lot even if they didn't say so much themselves. Because Madame du Coudray, of course, there were hundreds and hundreds of letters to her, by her, about her. I didn't have that kind of uh, archival richness for these women. But what I did have was what their male contemporaries said about them. And their male contemporaries admired them greatly, helped them, but then expected help from them, treated them really as scientific equals. And that in itself was sort of astonishing to me. So that's why at the beginning of the book, I have a list of men, and I call that um, actors in a supporting role, because these are the women's stories. But I needed those men. I needed what they wrote, and people like Benjamin Franklin, people like Denis Diderot, so many of the big names of the, of the Enlightenment were involved with my women, and knew them and said things about them. So that was actually something that I relied on a great deal when putting their stories together. So these were the six about whom I was able to feel pretty confident that I was giving maybe not the story of their lives, but a story of their lives that that rang true and that was convincing to me. If you if you allow me to to maybe ask a follow question follow up question on, on what you just said. Um, how how do you explain that uh, so that these women, coming from such a variety of of social background, uh, having such different opportunities in life uh, at the time they were living, uh, all came to uh, substantially contribute to science at the time? Uh, what do you think here is the common factor that social? Uh, or economic or cultural factor here that, in a way, uh, allowed these six uh, women to to contribute to science? Okay, another wonderful question. First of all, these women, every single one of them, had a burning curiosity about nature to understand how things work in the natural world. They posed from the very, very early sort of origins of their of their interest in their diverse fields, they posed questions which are scientific questions. Um, what allowed them to get where they got? Um, very, very clever maneuvers of different kinds. They were determined to not be thwarted in their desire to do science. They were excluded officially from every single one of the institutions, whether it was writing for the Encyclopédie, becoming a member of the Académie des Sciences, um, working for the periodical press. These were things that were closed to them officially. But they were very much on the periphery of these institutions. And there were men on the inside who were really relying on these women on the outside. So I think we're also dealing with a period where professional science didn't quite exist yet. 
We do have academies, but in the 19th century, science really congeals as a very exclusive profession. In the 18th century, there's still a more permeable membrane, really, between those who are outside and those who are inside. So when I talk about them being officially excluded from these institutions, I mean it. But on the other hand, they were relied upon by people within these institutions. So, for example, the anatomist who made wax anatomical figures and had her own personal medical museum and taught with these anatomical figures that she made, which were based on countless dissections that she did. She gave three different demonstrations at the Académie des Sciences. She was invited to actually present to the academicians. It's unheard of. Once, twice, three times she was asked to come in because she was doing something very unique. She was able to teach anatomy all year long Whereas actual dissections in the amphitheaters of the of the Faculté de Médecine, for example, were were shut down for about seven months of the year because of putrefaction. She had these anatom- these wax models that she could use to teach all year round. So on the one hand, the men were very eager for her knowledge, and she taught the philosophes. She taught all kinds of very important people in her day. Um, she also taught women. She also taught what can only be called sex education. She gave women a very, very clear idea of what their bodies were like, what would happen to them in, in pregnancy. Um, it's, it's astounding what she did. Men were offering no education of that kind at all. So she was a figure who was, uh, again, on the outside of the academy and yet appreciated by those on the inside and, and really admired. So what we have, and, and that's the, the tragedy in a way of, of history having erased the stories of these women because in their own day, they were forces to be reckoned with. Every single one of them was helped by men to a certain extent, but also relied upon by men for the scientific help that they could give. So back to your question, I think there is a kind of institutional fluidity during this period, which allowed these women to even begin to imagine a role for themselves in science. Um, But then there's also their, their individual agency. These women were just curious and driven and determined to make this work for them. I, I, I almost used the word career, which of course it was in a few cases. Mademoiselle Bieron, the anatomist, lived by her career of, of having a museum and having these exhibits and entertaining the public and doing demonstrations. Um, and Basport also had a career as the, as the botanical illustrator and, and, and botanist in the Jardin des Plantes or the Jardin du Roi, as it was called. So there were, there were a couple of them who made it their career and made a living by it. Um, the others were, were supported in various in various other ways, and just did it out of sheer passion and curiosity. That that is a fascinating, really facets I think of of the history of science that uh, your book reveals through these uh, the the stories of, of these women. Because um, maybe in a, in a more traditional sense of the history of science, we tend to think of the moment of the late eighteenth century. Uh, 19th century institutionalization of science as a path towards scientific progress and really the uh, really the the birth of what we recognize nowadays as scientific work 
but what's really interesting is that uh, it actually prevented, uh, it would have actually prevented the, the, the women from, uh, that you talk about in your book to have contributed as actively as they did had they lived just in the, uh, in the 19th century instead of the 18th century. Without any question. And then for a very long time, it's not as if the women didn't have the same sort of curiosity, but they did not have these kinds of opportunities, which were self-made opportunities, right? Because even in the period we're talking about, it's not as if men were just throwing down these red carpets for them. But once men recognized their stick their stamina, their grit, and their intelligence, they they did take them seriously. And you're right. It, I think science becomes much more shut down for women in the in the century that followed. So to to continue on that line of thought, um, uh, you mentioned these, these self-made uh, opportunities. Uh, so I, what I'm really interested uh, is that I think in the introduction of your book, you uh, use a distinction that was made by Michel de Certeau uh, between tactics and strategy. And you are using the concept, uh, his concept of tactics um, as, a, as a very instrumental concept throughout your book uh, to sort of refer to how these women were uh, making opportunities for themselves just to carry their work, to finance it, to get support, uh, etc. Um, so, I'm, I mean, obviously we don't have, you already went through uh, some of them. Uh, we don't have the time, sadly, to go through all of them. But if you could give us maybe a, a sample of two or three of such tactics uh, that could kind of give us a glimpse at the content of your book, but also of how the stories of uh, these women compare to, to one another. Okay, so I've already spoken about Mademoiselle Bieron, the anatomist. Uh, let me talk about um, Ren Lepote, the astronomer. So Ren Lepote was um, apparently brilliant even as a child. Uh, there are stories. Let me, let me first say that the reason that we know about her is because of an astronomer named Jérôme Lalande, a pretty well-known astronomer. If he had not spilled the beans and told us basically about the role she played in doing the calculations that allowed for the accurate prediction of the return of Halley's Comet, we wouldn't know because she worked with a mathematician named Clairaut, very famous mathematician in the period. And Clairaut denied that she had any role in it at all. Lalonde saw what went on, saw the fact that she had been deprived of the credit and decided to tell the story of what she actually did and that they would not have been able to make this prediction. They were racing against the clock, of course, because this comet was going to appear in the sky and a prediction is not a prediction unless you say it before it happens, right? So, so this was a, a, just months and months and months of, of feverish calculations in which she played an absolutely central role. So thanks to Lalonde, we know quite a bit about her. What was her tactic? She was married, she, she, she married fairly young. The, by the way, the ones who married, married at like 14. Um, Thierry d'Arconville, the chemist, had given her husband three sons by the time she was 19 and decided, okay, boom, boom, I've done it. I've done what I was supposed to do. He has an heir, he has a spare, and even a third one, and I can now turn to what I want to do. So she's she was a, really a character. But back to the astronomer. Her tactic was to 
the husband was one of the royal clockmakers, so he had his own job. She tabulated some. She tabulated some tables of uh, pendulum motion for for a book that that had his name on it. Turns out his his treatise on clockmaking was probably written mostly by her. Again, Lalonde tells us this. But what did she do to to survive in marriage? Because marriage was extraordinarily stifling for women in this period. As somebody has written, they had the rights of the criminal and the lunatic. I mean, basically no rights as a married woman. As a widow, more so, which is another interesting story. But um, so Lepote is in a marriage with a man who certainly does not, is nowhere close to her equal intellectually. Uh, but as a little girl, she apparently she had a very cute sister, and, and the sister would say, I am the fairest. And um, Ren Lepote would say, but I am the smartest. And that kind of self-confidence manifested itself really pretty much throughout her life. She also is the one who insisted on academic recognition and was the first woman to get into a scientific academy in France happens to have been the Academy of Béziers in the South, but no other woman had had breached that frontier. So uh, she, what did she do? She's in a marriage. She wants to do science. So she brings the astronomer Lalande into her household. It's a ménage à trois, very chaste, but this was her maneuver so that she could do astronomy. He was an astronomer, and he persuaded the clockmaker husband to make astronomical clocks. So there they are, living happily for, for several decades, which is why Lalande has, of course, the inside story on her. But so that's an example of a tactic. She doesn't rock the boat. She doesn't wreck her marriage. Nothing scandalous. And the husband is delighted to have an astronomer who can advise him on how to really reach this new market for astronomical clocks. I mean, there's an example for you, okay? Ferrand, what did Ferrand do? Elisabeth Ferrand, the mathematician. She was an invalid. She got all of the great people whose brains she wanted to pick and who she thought could really stimulate her as a mathematician. Um, she brought them into her home. She had an amazing salon. Now, we have not, we don't have her, her mathematical papers. She worked on curves, algebraic curves. She, her, her actual scientific work has disappeared. The custodians of culture did not think that saving them was a worthwhile thing to do. Same thing with, with uh, Madame Lepout's astronomical work on the transit of Venus, gone. So these are the kinds of holes that I had to deal with all the time, but they just kept leading me back to the amazing inventiveness of these women and the fact that we don't actually have the work any longer. We know about the work because of what people said. So in the case of Ferrand, we have a bunch of um, mathematicians who are corresponding with each other about her, her mathematical prowess. And then she gets involved with Condillac, who was one of the most famous of the philosophes, working with him on epistemology and basically writing his, his Traité des Sensations, which is considered one of the foundational works of the Enlightenment. So they, they managed to do what they needed to do, but in these extraordinarily creative ways. What about Basseport? Basseport gets herself, she's an artist primarily, or first, she's an artist. She, teaches, she, she starts a school for, for, girl, for young orphaned girls to teach them flower painting so they can have economic independence. 
Then she gets, she goes, to, she decides that's not exciting enough for her. And she goes to the Jardin du Roi and she becomes an apprentice to the man who is the dessinateur du roi, the royal um, botanical illustrator. She does a lot of work for him. He gets all kinds of money and credit for many things that she actually draws and paints. And we, I found the proof of this. She doesn't complain. She just sticks to it and does it. And when he dies, she gets that job. No woman has ever had that job. The job of, of official dessinateur du roi at the, at the Jardin du Roi. And she becomes, through her training as a botanical illustrator, a botanist, a really respected botanist, respected, for example, by Linnaeus. You don't get better than that. He visits the Jardin. He talks to her. He continues to write to her and about her. So she put herself right in the middle of a very, very male enclave, stood her ground, got the job, kept the job for almost 50 years, signing her work. And toward the end, she actually put next to her signature her age. I am in my 79th year. I am in my 80th year. She's still doing these botanical illustrations. So what I meant when I said that that Michel de Certeau's idea of tactics was, was very helpful to me is that none of these women rocked the boat. I mean, what, that would have been catastrophic. They would not have been able to do what they wanted to do. They figured out where there were openings, chances, opportunities, and they got themselves into those places. And they just made it work for them. That is, that is really, really an incredible summary, I think, of, of some of the stories you're telling in, in the book. And I think um, we can easily get a sense of the creativity <laughs> of, of, of some of these tactics. I, I, I particularly love this idea of just uh, having fashioning a menage à trois <laughs> and, and in a way making this all work for, for everybody involved. Uh, I, I I found that like a remarkable example of just uh, boldness, but also, as you mentioned, not in uh, a pro- provocative sense, just in a very s- smart way of uh, understanding uh, the environments once once is living and the kind of opportunities that are uh, closed, but the ones that therefore remains open. Uh, I I would like to now s- switch maybe to. Um, considerations that are a bit more uh, about methodology. Uh, you uh, write in, uh, in your introduction uh, what I think is a very, uh, very you, you provide obviously a lot of interesting remarks in your introduction, but one of them really uh, stuck with me and I've been continuing to think about it. Um, and, and if you don't mind, I'll just quote it very, very, very quickly. Uh, it, it just goes like this. Um, my more gender-inclusive narrative shows not only the content of these women's work and days, but the fact that they were, due to their own efforts and tenacity, accepted rather than thwarted. To probe this dynamic meaningfully, uh, this dynamic meaningfully, it does not suffice to concentrate on their male colleagues and then to just, quote-unquote, add women and stir. Such a technique does nothing to alter the traditional picture. Instead, we must flip it around, adjust our lens, zoom in on the women at the center, and then consider the orbiting men who became who become visible in their lives as we pan out. End quote. So it seems like here you are rocking the boat, <laughs> or you are at least describing what looks like a sort of a, a, a sort of. A, 
heliocentric revolution in the history of science. Uh, so what, what, what do you find most difficult maybe in, in fashioning such a point of view, in, in, in sticking with it while writing? And, uh, and, and also, what are, what are the, the advantages? I'll say, what are the benefits, really, of taking that approach? Um, and what did it you know, show that we wouldn't have seen otherwise? Well, I think that, and there may have been a certain amount of slippage, but the, the mission that I gave to myself was to continue concentrating on the women's stories. And indeed, to talk about, to, to, to need, I, I say right after the, what you just read, I say that we, we do need those men. We need the men because they're the ones whose writing did get preserved and whose writing included a lot of information about my women right? So we have to, that's why I talk about the men as being in a supporting role. I need their information to construct my stories. But my stories, to the extent that I could do it, stuck very, very closely to what the women did, to their deeds. Deeds don't lie. And the actions that they, the, 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 the things that they did, the actions that they chose to take. Those were the things that I really wanted to concentrate on. So, so what the men provided was some context. The men provided also proof positive that these women were very much appreciated in their day, that the work they did was recognized as valuable contributions. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to just make their life choices very central to the story. So Yes, I could have written about them through the lens of the men. And to some extent, I have to do that because, as I say, those are the writings, those are the stories about the women that are preserved. But except in the case of Thierry d'Arconville, who dictated 13 volumes of memoirs to a, a, a young relative of hers when she was in her very old age, that was an extraordinary source, of course. That's the kind of thing that makes historians salivate, right? I mean, here I had the woman herself talking about her life. She's very old. She's obviously, this gets us into the whole philosophical question of, of memory in history writing. We have to not go there because then we'd never finish. But, but uh, she reveals a lot of extraordinarily important things about herself and her role and how chemistry was the thing that she loved most, although she also wrote plays and histories. And I mean, she was just an extraordinary intellect. But I'm losing focus with your question, but I guess I guess the way to answer your question most simply is to be determined. I was determined to have these be the stories of the women. I used what the men told us about them as much as I needed to, but mostly I focused on what they did. Where were they at a certain point in their lives? Where were they trying to get? What did they do to get there? So I think I think when you write a history of science and you mentioned that there was the occasional woman who, who did something that's got a very different flavor than when you say, here are the women who did something. Um, that's the sense in which I wanted to do more than just sort of sprinkle them into the traditional story. And I think that by turning it on its head, some very interesting things were revealed, especially about the kind of, um, you could almost call it welcome on the part of the men for what these very determined women were doing. You know, they recognized these were not dilettantes. I think I, 
I, I certainly say somewhere in the book, it's probably in the intro, that the, the shortest time span that any of these women devoted to science was 15 years. The longest was half a century and everything in between. These are not women who are just playing at it. These are women for whom science is a, is a, a goal and a, and a motivator and a passion. That's what I wanted to stay steady focusing on. There, there, to to follow up on on that, that you're and, and you mentioned this in many ways in, in many um, instances already. Uh, the the role of men is obviously important, although not central in the book. Important just as at least in providing the context, in providing even. Maybe some of the slightest, yes, information. the slightest information, or even just the mention that then uh, of of some of these women that led you then to to pursuing their stories. Um, so I, I think what you your book offers in in, in across recurrent comments is really uh, a reflection also on the state of the archives um, and and is and just the, the traces and the evidence that have been left uh, or erased uh, of these women. So uh, beyond the, the clear methodological difficulties that it implies uh, for, for the work uh, of, of an historian like yourself, um, I, I couldn't help but also feel in some instances, and maybe you can correct me on this uh, across the book, a certain sense of melancholy at times. Uh, you, of course, do not dwell in this melancholic feeling across your book, uh, and, and you show as much creativity, I think, uh, than the, the women you're talking about. Um, but your book sometimes reads to me as a journey to resourcefully remedy that loss of evidence. Uh, and one thing that I found particularly humbling um, it was your photography uh, of uh, Jeanne Barret's grave. And uh, the comment that you put on it, where you said that, well, the name has been erased right by time. And I think it serves as an amazing metaphor for a lot of the, 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 the memories that, you know, um, that, wasn't, that wasn't carried on for all of, these, uh, all of these women. But also, you mentioned that this grave was identified as Jean Bear's grave because um, uh, local historians... Uh, still remembered or at least found evidence of that fact. And I think that's, that is so interesting to see how the knowledge is still there somewhere. Or is again, uh, is again there. Yeah. Or yeah, th there is, there, there is, there are ways in a way to answer that uh, what seems to be a, a profound lack of evidence. There are ways to, to find it. Um, and, and, and maybe, you know, in, in the same line, what I found the most intriguing and really beautiful in your book is how you decided to write letters at the end of each chapter to uh, each of the six women you were telling the, you were telling the story and uh, to ask them questions, to express your admiration, your feelings, etc. And I thought it was a quite interesting thing for an historian to actually write letters when the job is usually to read them, analyze them. So I, I thought it was a very, yeah, a, a very bold thing to do. So could you just tell us about what prompted the addition of such, uh, such a personal medium of expression in, right in the center of your book every single time at the end of each chapter, which it seems kind of an odd thing to do in a university historian 
kind of book. So could you could you help us could you help us understand what led you to to adding uh, these letters at the end of each chapter? Okay, let me just say at the beginning that they don't answer me. I, I'm I'm not that far gone, right? Yes, okay. of course, of course. Yes. <laughs> let us just establish that for anybody. Yes, yes, absolutely right. Listening to this, um, okay. Uh, let me go back to my previous book just for a second. So the the book on the midwife um, took me also many many years. I traveled throughout France finding the paper trail of her amazing odyssey because she was sent throughout France to do to do this teaching, um, and I. I was so much in the immediacy of her adventure that the book came out in the present tense. I kept trying to fix it. Historians don't do this. Biographers don't do this. I changed every, every is to a was. And after a while, I just realized this was, this was how the book simply wanted to come out. You can imagine I got lots of jokes. This is about a midwife, right? This is how the book wanted to be born, said one of my colleagues, whatever. I, uh, so I think that already, and then also that book does not have the canonical chapters one expects in a historical monograph. It, it has dateline entries because I, I wanted to talk about her stops, not not in every place because there would have been a real sameness to that, but each time there was a stop that was significantly different from something that had come up before or some, some kind of crisis she encountered or some sort of extraordinary thing that she did, um, I featured her time in that particular provincial town in one of these dateline entries. So there were like 50 some odd of those. So I'm mentioning this only because by writing in the present tense, by writing it chopped up into these little sound bites, um, I was already taking some liberties with the biographical form, uh, not to be deliberately iconoclastic, but just because it seems to me um, when one writes a life, one should write it authentically. And telling this kind of seamless cradle to grave, womb to tomb narrative that all makes perfect sense is really not okay. I, I think that the biographer is necessarily very involved with the biographical subject, that it's okay to say that. And so, yes, I get, I get very, very much enmeshed in the stories that I work on and that I write. So I guess that previous book had given me a certain courage to do some tweaking with this genre if it seemed necessary. So it's not as if I set out to do that. Now, in this book, in Minerva's French Sisters, I do indeed write a letter to each of the women after their chapter. And the chapters are the, the very sort of scholarly chapters that one would expect. And then, as you said yourself, these letters are a little unexpected. I think you used the word bold. Thank you very much, uh, as opposed to crazy. Um, but what did I do that for? I did it because there were so many questions that I couldn't answer, even after almost two decades of working very hard on all of them, right? I figured that these were also questions that the reader would have. So it seemed to me a good idea to pose them. No answers were forthcoming, but to just create a pause by posing these questions. That was one thing. The other thing was that I thought that these women had a right to know how they are regarded today. So let's go back to the astronomer for a minute. I thought it was very important for her to know that there is a lunar crater named for her, that there is an asteroid named for her, and that as of just three years ago, there is a street in Paris right near the new Bibliothèque Nationale named for her. Shouldn't she know that? 
I thought so. So I wrote and told her. And so in each of these chapters, I am also trying to make what many before me have called a usable past. I, 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 don't, I don't know how realistic it is that young girls going into the STEM fields or women struggling to stay in these fields once they get there are going to read a book about France 250 years ago. I don't know. But my hope is always that these extraordinary women create an inspiring example so the letters were also my way of trying to sort of connect the past to the present and have readers understand, if it's not already clear in the chapters, that these extraordinary lives, the efforts to which these women went, the incredible perseverance that they displayed, each one of them in their idiosyncratic ways, um, that these are to be emulated. These are the kinds of things that that, that women today should 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 see, should read, should hear about, should know about. So I try in those letters to sort of bring things into the present. Um, and for those several reasons that I've just enumerated, they seem to me like a, a, a good idea and, and even a necessary thing. I, I found also that these letters provided, in a way, an insight into the way history is also being studied and written. Uh, I, I think in those letters, or at least a very personal insight into how historians end up working and encountering their, um, their, their, the topic of their research and, and the fact that it is in so many ways intertwined with just a personal life. You mentioned many times that uh, you were just strolling in uh, in in the neighborhoods where some of these women were living, or you were working uh, next to uh, where some of these women were living, um, and and I found it very an interesting overlapping of temporalities here, which I think is is you know what inherently the job of an historian uh, leads to, and uh, and as well also some of these very genuine questions that are simply asked. Oh, did you meet? meet this person uh you sh you must you you should have right or you must have because uh you knew that person and uh you were among the same social circle etc so i think it also these letters also help uh humanize in a way the the academic research and and i thought at least from my point of view i thought it was very uh very useful and and and, and valuable did you did you also see it in in this way that it could not only just inspire young girls and young women reading that book about, you know, emulating uh, the people you're talking about, but it could also, in a way, serve uh, young historians as, you know, in, in, in reflecting on their own practice. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you received it that way, and I, and I hope so, because for me, going back an awful lot of decades, uh, history has been a living, breathing thing. It's it's not you. You mentioned earlier in in a previous question that this insight of yours that that some of this was a little melancholy. Indeed, when you're on the trail of something and then you find that the that the the trail disappears, right? The things that I was not able to find, the things I was not able to reconstruct, um, and and I, I like how you saw the 
you know, the reconstruction of Jeanne Barret's grave in, in, in Perigord uh, as, a, as a metaphorical thing. I mean, we, you know, what do we know? We know that she traveled around the world. We know that she uh, ended up settling in the Dordogne. We know that she was buried in that particular little cemetery near this ancient, ancient church. But all the gravestones are, uh, have, been, have been erased. All the names on them have been erased with, with weather and time. And so the locals decide, well, this is gonna, we're going to say this is her grave. We know it's one of them, so let's say this is her grave. And they, they honor her. They celebrate her. She's like this local heroine, you know, and this is after, again, two centuries of, of being entirely erased. So, so yes, for me, history is very, very personal. And I, you know, in the chapters, of course, I, I don't let my emotions muddy the waters. But in these letters, uh, I, I want very much to make a connection on a, on a different kind of level. Uh, so if you don't mind to, I, I think, I, I think, I mean, it's been such a, such a pleasure to really discuss that this book, and for really all the reasons that we already, uh, I think, uh, enumerated and, and, and discussed. Um, but to, to end this interview, I would like uh, maybe for you to share some of the current research you, you're doing, or maybe that, you know, as <laughs> one, one trail leads to another always in, in research, especially in history and following the archives. Um, so I, I was wondering if there is anything, any projects that you're currently uh, working on that you would like to share uh, some uh, s- some of your latest leads, maybe that you would well, like to share. Oh, that's lovely. Well, thanks. Um, yes, of course. When one finishes a book, you're sort of like a kid in a candy shop, right? There's just all this stuff you can start all over again from scratch with something new, and that's really just thrilling. Um, I think I may go back to something that I worked on already. Wrote a couple of articles about, and that is. Uh, Charlotte Corday, the murderess of Marat. Um, around the time of the bicentennial of the French Revolution, there were countless meetings on the revolution. And uh, I can't even, I cannot count the number of talks that I gave on Charlotte Corday, who is yet another 18th century French woman, right? A bad girl this time. Um, but not really, somebody who stood up for the courage of her convictions and who honestly believed, it was naive, but she did believe that by silencing Marat, she could bring peace to France because she saw him as by far the most dangerous of the triumvirate of Marat, Robespierre, and Danton. Why? Because Marat had a newspaper. He reached far more people than than the delegates who just stood up and gave speeches at the convention. So she knew what she was doing, or, you know, she didn't realize what the outcome would be. But at the time of the uh, bicentennial of the revolution, which was in 89, I gave lots of talks at lots of meetings about uh, Corday, but emphasizing really the art, emphasizing David's famous painting of Marat, Son Dernier Soupir. And um, that's, of course, a picture that everybody knows. And then talking about the way subsequent artists revisited the story through art and, you know, putting her in the bathtub, doing an empty bathtub. I mean, it was fascinating and fun because I could show lots of slides and talk about a a lot of things, ways in which that story was being played with because David really wanted to fasten his grip on that story. He has Mara looking beatific. It's a sort of a pieta posture, right? In fact, he was mangy and rotting from this terrible disease that he had. 
which would have killed him probably within a week if she had not made him a martyr. So there's a lot to be said about this, and that's not what you and I are supposed to be talking about. But since you asked, um, the uh, you know for David, it was very important that everybody look at Maha, find him beautiful, find him Christ-like, uh, and that Corday not be materialized in the picture at all, right? There's her bloody knife on the floor. There's her her letter of lies that he has in his hand, which the beholder of the picture can read easily. Um, but there's another side to this story, obviously. So, so I think at the time I was thinking I would do some kind of cocktail book with all these images of, of starting with the David and then all the things that subsequent or, and any artist worth his or her salt, by the way, revisits this painting. Everybody you can name has done versions of this story, right? Based on the David. But then I realized, you know, it would cost a fortune. I'd have to get permissions for everything. And maybe seven people would read it. So I never, I never did that book. I wrote some articles and now I'm thinking I might want to go back to her and do something with her. And that's really pretty much all I can say right now, not because I'm being coy, but because I don't, you know, this is a case by the way, where there's very little, she, she murdered Mara and was dead four days later herself. During those four days, she wrote six letters of, of real significance and we know about those four days. She was kept alive because she was constantly being interrogated night and all, you know, all day and all night because it was just unthinkable to the authorities that a woman could have conceived and executed this thing all by herself. Who were her collaborators? Who put her up to it? In fact, it was completely hers and hers alone. But they needed to convince themselves of that. So they kept her alive before sending her to the guillotine. So we have... There's a lot I feel that can be done with Charlotte Corday's story that has not yet been done. So I think I may return to that. Let's let's leave it with that idea. Another 18th century French woman, but woman, but of a different of a different kind. Let, let's just add for the record that I would have been part of these seven readers of that cocktail book. Oh, that's neat. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know what? You, you can go on Google and just put in Corday, Marat, you know, go to images, and you'll see, I mean, everybody, Dubuffet, um, Picasso, just everybody went back and did versions of this murder. Um, and you can tell their political sympathies, of course, from how they, how they do it. Um, so that's, well, that's very nice to know, Victor. I should maybe have done the book so you could, <laughs> it would have bankrupted me and whatever, and whatever, I, and whatever press accepted it. I, I don't want to force you into anything. Absolutely not. But listen, thank you so much, Professor. That Thank you once more for, for your time, for sharing with us uh, some of your work, your insight uh, and, on the history of women in science, the Enlightenment. This was absolutely fascinating. Thank you again very, very much. And thank you for your great questions and your enthusiasm. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.